Hello and welcome to a new experiment from the Quentin Grover. Uh, we love games, but we're also huge fans of films and television, especially in these COVID times. So we decided to start a podcast all about that. My name's Tom Senior, and frankly I'm just some guy who likes to tell you too much. So I wanted to team up with someone who's actually worked in the industry. I'm delighted to be joined by Jamie Britton, who recently wrote some episodes of Breeders with Simon Blackwell of the Thick of It fame, and co-created fantastic comedy coming-of-age drama Skins. Is that a good way to describe it, Jamie? You made it after all. I think you could describe it like that, yeah. It's... Uh... It's, it seems like a long time ago <laughs> when I was making that one, but uh, yeah, it was it's it, it was a uh, it was a whole thing <laughs> that seems like a whole other life now. It was amazing making it, and it was kind of mad, and mm. it did weird things to my brain. <laughs> like I just really wasn't in a place where I could cope with having a, like a big TV show. And because it really t- it did take off, like it, it was properly. It got a bit well. It got a bit weird for a while, you know. It got a bit intense, mm-hmm. and then like after after it finished, and it finished in like I don't know, two thousand and eleven or twelve or something like that. Mm-hmm. And after it had gone, it was such a peculiar feeling because with it, <laughs> with with the the ending of that show, my career also just sort of was sucked into a black hole as well. I was sort of. I sort of assumed that I would be able to kind of hop back on and keep on. But actually, the last few years since then have been a real kind of right back to the start. <laughs> and so I found myself kind of a few years ago like, oh, man, I didn't learn anything. <laughs> I think you've kind of uh, I think you're, you're being a bit self-deprecating there because it was a great show. The writing was great. And that success is part of your creative input. It sounds to me from as an outside observer, like the, the business itself can be quite cruel to creatives. <laughs> and it, like, it can be. Quite... And it is. And you, have, you also just have to be, no, I, I, I loved work making skates. It's one of the best times I had in my life. But the thing is, you know, just on the kind of industry level is that you need to be, if you're a writer, you need to be on your toes and you need to be kind of like really persistent and aggressive with how you kind of conduct your career. And I just have none, none of those skills right. at all. But yeah, and it's, and I've, you know, just in the last couple of years, I've managed to get some stuff back on TV again. Fantastic. Which, which is a nice feeling. So yeah. Yeah. What's, what's that stuff? Give it a, give it a, give it a plug. You know. uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, I wrote on Kiss Me First, which got cancelled by Netflix after one season. Imagine that. <laughs> I mean, that happens to a lot of shows. <laughs> uh, well, that kind of came actually at a time when it wasn't happening to so many shows. And it was probably deservedly so, to be honest. It wasn't a great show, I don't think. And then more recently, I've been working on Breeders, which has been a sitcom, oh, yeah. which, is, which is a sitcom with Martin Freeman and Daisy Haggard in it. And I've written a few episodes of that. And that's just been great. That's been like being in a writer's room and, you know, working, with, right, someone, awesome. working with Simon Blackwell, uh, you know, who's... Wrote the, thick, wrote the thick of it yeah. and stuff like that with Armando Nucci. So that has been like a real, really lovely, really lovely experience of sitting in a room and with funny people. That sounds fantastic. This is the reason why like, I was so keen to get you on is because uh, you actually know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm just a sort of a fan of stuff. Like, Hopefully between us, we can actually sort of do some analysis of some of the really brilliant television films that's that are out at the moment. Yeah, um, so, uh, and so I would love. I would say right at the top that like you know even though I'm a um, you know a TV writer like uh, and I can get quite over the top when I'm excited about something. I by no means sort of consider myself an expert. Really, I consider myself a sort of journeyman telly writer who's eager to learn. And so like I love kind of attacking TV shows and crack them open mm. to see how they work. You know, and it's yeah, absolutely. I, if I'm doing that, so you know, it can sometimes sound like I'm sort of 
superior to it, and I'm I'm really not. I I I just love to sort of see how things work. Brilliant. So just to give listeners a kind of idea of what the podcast is going to be today, we're going to do like a few different sections. We're going to sort of like talk a little bit about what we've been watching recently. Then we're going to deep dive on a very interesting show called Devs, which came out in March this year. And then at the end, we're sort of going to we're going to round up some of our favourite film and television arguments. <laughs> and that's the basic structure of what's going to happen. Uh, this is all experimental, so please write in to creativecrowbar at gmail.com and give us any feedback, and I'd be delighted to to hear it. Yeah, so Jamie, what have you been watching? Well, as you said up top there, like the Corona times have uh, have given us a kind of television, a new lease of life, although personally speaking, it's kind of broadened my parameters of acceptance. Like I am far more willing to watch something like, in fact, I actively go out of my way to find things that are boring and or mediocre. Uh, to just kind of, you know, some sort of morphine <laughs> against the, the stress and terror of the time. But I have been watching a show called The Big Flower Fight on Netflix, which is a very middle of the road, <laughs> Great British Bake Off style show where someone has clearly gone, uh, right, well, people like The Great British Bake Off. And so we can't make that one again, that someone's already done that. And people also kind of like flowers. So how can we make the Great British Bake Off but with flowers? <laughs> right. And so they've come up with the show The Big Flower Fight, which basically involves teams of two people constructing a kind of cake <laughs> out of flowers. There's no better way of putting it, really. Like, it's weird. They've kind of invented an artistic medium specifically for this show. <laughs> I think because it fits in well with the kind of time constraints and the sort of structure of a show like that. So yes, these teams of sort of oddballs and, and, and flower loonies uh, kind of build these kind of weird sculptures and statues and kind of animals and fish out of, you know, bits of wire and then sort of decorate with them with flowers. And the things, <laughs> the things they make are, are kind of striking and great, but it is also like this is the first and only time I've ever seen an enormous orangutan made out of leaves. <laughs> <laughs> so that's fascinating. Like, so, like, what? So, this doesn't seem to be an actual profession that exists. Uh, so, I'm really curious about who the actual people are who are doing this and where they've kind of come from, where they found. Like, yeah. maybe it's like a hobby for lots of people. It, well, it's it. That's kind of there's the rub, really, because there's a couple of guys on there who are proper, like, sort of event florists. You know, they're the guys you get for a wedding to do something elaborate and complicated and artistic. And they're sort of winning every challenge. And if they don't, there's a couple of like artists. And if the designer guys don't win, then they win. And then everyone else is just a gardener <laughs> and they right. just lose. They just lose everyone because <laughs> again, like their skill set for this thing is so specific that they, I think have found the four people <laughs> who can do it really well. And the rest of us is just playing catch up. So who's judging this? <laughs> in that context uh, he's just a guy i don't know who he is he's a guy he's very sharp-seated american guy with a kind of squeaky sure. voice and he's again he's fine but also he kind of comes around and gives very imperious instructions and, and paul hollywood style tips and sort of you know evasive little nods and stuff like that but the problem is with that is that paul hollywood is you know he's he spent his life baking, you know, and there's a really specific rule set around baking, which you can only fiddle with so much. Whereas whatever the hell they're doing with these big constructions, <laughs> you know, there's no, like, so when he says to them, like, I want it to be this, and what I'm really looking for with this is to be this, 
it just comes off as seeming like, but you're just making that up. It's not like you're drawing on an established <laughs> rule set for these things. Right. Or even any sort of economy for this sort of thing, I think. Like, unless you're running a sort of great, great Gatsby style party and you're yeah. like a, a centerpiece. And yeah. I can't imagine that's a, a tremendously huge economy. The entire economy of these things is this show and, and nothing else. And so, yeah, it's kind of peculiar. It's, it, they've got a great bunch of people. There's a, a, a kind of nicely diverse bunch. So that's quite good. Vic Reeves and, it's uh, the comedian Natasha, Natasha Dimitriou are the presenters. And they're fine as well. I think, again, there is this tyranny that has been created by the Great British Bake Off of sort of forced, mm, off-the-cuff, yeah. jovial conversations that we just know, I think all viewers must know when they see it, when we're seeing a kind of someone makes a gag and then all the contestants laugh and it wasn't funny at all and just how oppressive and eerie... <laughs> that can feel when it's clearly been something that's come up with the producers and the people on the day have to kind of wing it, you know. Yeah, I think that's interesting with the Great British Break Off. So I, I really like Sadie Toxic, she's brilliant. But it's something weird about just me sort of stuck in a tent with Noel Fielding. <laughs> I think they, they eventually nailed some chemistry and actually like that. I, I do like both of them a lot. But you're right, there is a strange kind of almost like Stepford Wives like idealism behind the Great British Bake Off that makes it quite a little bit sinister. Yeah, it's peculiar because of those hosts as well are, are sort of chosen through a sense of sort of discord as well. Like they choose the hosts for their kind of sense of cultural noise. <laughs> you know, they don't want anyone to be threatening or superior. Right. Yeah. Um, so what you end up is this really like... Sandy Toxvig and Noel Fielding, both people I really like, they look so weird standing next to each other and their energy is so weird and successfully so, I think, actually. I think it made for a good a good sort of presenting team, although she's gone there, hasn't she? But, That's right, yeah. But it is still a must, a very weird art to get two kind of culturally discordant people uh, and put them together to present. Because you used to just get two pretty people, you know, or two people mm. who could hold a sentence. And now you have to aim for a kind of bouncy joviality, wink-wink, nudge-nudge vibe. I mean, I, I almost wanted to tear my eyes out watching. It was Zoe Ball and Nadia who won the, the Bake Off. Right. And they, did, they, did a, they briefly did a, a kind of cooking family show, which included scenes of them sort of shuffling up to each other and having off-the-cuff conversations that had clearly just been, you know, they'd just been told to, and it was agonising to watch because they had no chemistry and it was just awful, you know. Oh, there was a, there, so there was an equivalent of a um, MasterChef that was basically dedicated to baking um, in the UK, and I'll, I'll, I'll research this and look it up and put it in the show notes, um, but it was incredibly serious and brutal. Oh, was, <laughs> that, was it that creme de la creme thing? Was it that one? I think so. I think it's that one, yeah. Um and so it's like instead of having these affable, slightly zany hosts, uh, they had like just people who took their bit their own business so seriously uh, that they would just ruthlessly tear down any sort of minor, you know, error in a cake or a, <laughs> a, a stack of fruit or something. Um, and it was actually just soulless and horrible to watch because yes. they're just people trying really hard and then just getting brutalised for it. I think I remember. That one was notable because it had this really like Byzantine scoring system, which was complete, <laughs> which involved people sort of holding up numbers between one and three hundred <laughs> together. Right. Yeah. So was... that's the thing in baking. <laughs> yeah. And also, I remember that one of the teams introduced themselves as like these kind of um, boutique bakers who often worked in the city for kind of clients from overseas, 
Mm. And one of them said, you know, sometimes we don't know who we're baking for. Sometimes I don't think we even want to know who we're baking for. And it's, <laughs> what, like the mafia? What yeah, are you talking like about? arms dealers, I think that's sort of what they're saying. It's like, Blimey. it's like, wow, we've made some, we've made some shady cakes. <laughs> this shady is a, like, I love this genre actually. Like this seems to have popped, like become really popular in the sort of like five, 10 years. Especially, I think MasterChef is largely responsible for it from a British perspective. I think there are like American cooking shows that have also brought it back. And in that vein, I would love to recommend to everyone Deep Fried Masters, <laughs> which is, this is a masterful example of the form. And it's three guys who are just very good at deep frying things. They make loads of money just going to state fairs in America and going to uh, the fabled Midway to sell things like, uh, let's see here, deep fried Oreos mozzarella sticks churros fine deep fried butter <laughs> deep fried butter at one point they analyze someone's deep fried butter and it squirts down his shirt the butter is obviously liquid inside and it's crispy outside and he, was, he just nods and say that's like that's how it should be <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what deep fried butter is supposed to be like it's it's an accidental comedy masterpiece it's absolutely wonderful and i won't spoil like some of the guests you get on there so all, all they've got is deep fat fryers and it's amazing how much stuff could go wrong <laughs> when you're just trying to deep fry, fry stuff. Uh, so Deep Fried Masters, that's available on, I think it's on Amazon Prime, uh, if you want to get on there. But um, it's, oh, it, it never got renewed. I wish it had. It's seven episodes of absolute quality reality TV of the best kind. I'd greatly recommend it. Well, it sounds good. I mean, it sounds like, a, like things like on Netflix, like the Chef's Table and stuff like that, which have that kind of, that, in, that kind of attitude of persistent and ringing, um, reverence and pretentiousness mm. which i just find hectoring and irritating to the point of madness you know um it's ridiculous so yeah that sounds much more <laughs> up my alley it's good fun and uh, yeah uh oh gosh i'd love to talk about some of the characters on there but um <laughs> uh also it's the fact that they sort of pretend to be at state fairs but they definitely aren't <laughs> yeah. uh, so they're just they're just in a tent and you never see outside of the tent very much at all apart from where they're cooking and occasionally they'll sort of like a sheep will wander along that they've probably hired for some poor farmer just to set dress the place yeah, right. um which is uh it's extraordinary I, I, it's so good so good um <laughs> everyone should watch it so uh what have you been watching tom so i've been watching oh, apart from deep fried masters of course um <laughs> i've been watching a uh, snowpiercer on netflix and this is an interesting show because it was originally a film. Oh, it was originally a book, actually. And it was made into a film in 2013 by Bong Joon-ho. And the film itself is an interesting watch. So basically, so what a snowpiercer is, I'll just give the premise. So the world has frozen to death. Bad news. But someone has built a train that goes all the way around America and it's a perpetual motion machine that keeps the train warm for the entire duration. It's also a giant kind of class allegory. So the people at the back of the train uh, have nothing and they're starving and, and having an awful time. People in the middle of the train are kind of hustling and it's a bit kind of Mos Eisley kind of vibe. And the people at the top of the train live in absolute luxury. And it's controlled by a mysterious man who no one quite ever sees who's in charge of the engine and everyone thinks the engine is a kind of god and uh, uh so the film is a kind of almost like it's designed to be a parody i don't think it's designed to be taken seriously it involves people from the back of the carriage rushing cops with 
homemade axes in an incredibly violent scene <laughs> that goes on for way longer than it probably should. But Netflix has picked this up and turned it into something quite different, actually. Obviously, it's still enormous class disparity throughout the train, but they've got the two brilliant leads at the back and the front of the train who really, really carry it. All at the back of the train, played by David Diggs, who is Andre Layton, and he's a kind of revolutionary who wants to actually equalise the class disparity across the train. But even more impressive is uh, Jennifer Connolly, who plays Menely Cavill, who's at the front of the train, and she's uh, she's the voice of the train. She's basically a kind of PR. But the more you watch the show, the more competent she is, and the more you realise that there's something else going on. And I really don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's kind of like a, it ends up being a combination of like a uh, this kind of class struggle sci-fi dystopia but also a murder mystery and also just like a load of cool set design in terms of like from carriage to carriage one of them is an aquarium one of them is just a, a, like absolutely gorgeous upper class dining carriage and then of course there are the slums at the very back of the train and is, it, uh, is it all set on the train it, oh yes wow. <laughs> there is nothing but the train which is quite a bold thing yeah to, like just to, it's almost like a you know what you'd call it like a, every episode is a bottle episode every episode is a bottle yeah yeah and um, which is but they they do some like quite nice CGI shots outside of the train and um, the cold outside is this sort of magic killer force <laughs> that they use to chop people's arms off and execute each other in various ways and it's uh, it's uh, yeah I won't say more than that because it's I think it's actually quite good even though it's it, as you say it's um it's morphine it's definitely morphine in terms of just being a thing you could lie down on the couch and watch and just enjoy. Yeah, I have to say, I think it sounds great. I mean, the original film was Bong Joon-ho, wasn't it? Who, That's who, right, who yeah. Who did Parasite recently, and he's, you know, he's always been this kind of master of tonal shifts and smashing genres together just, and then just sort of seeing what happened. So it sounds like they've kind of imported some of that into this and sort of run with it, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, so they, I think that they have to an extent, but I think what's quite brave about it is that they've actually changed the story in very significant ways that actually allows it to be more than a two-hour-long film. Yeah. That gives it more substance, and they're able to create more sense of community in the different carriages and the interactions and betrayals between them. And also, like, they've just added extra mystery subplots that make me want to watch the second series, which I'm sure will happen. It's, it's funny, actually, just sort of from working in, in TV for a while now, there are certain ideas that... You often see people have written scripts of wizard detectives is one. You know, I've read a mm. wizard detective script many, many times and they never get made, you know. And another one actually is the sort of sci-fi thing, usually a spaceship where it's a bunch of factions at war on a spaceship, right. you know, traveling through through deep space and stuff like that. And people really yeah, like that. Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar yeah. Bat- yeah. Galactica is obviously the, the sort of high point of it. But this sounds like it's a kind of, it's a version of that more than it's, uh, you know, a sort of, more than it's, you know, anything else, you know, which is, is really interesting because it's kind of a white whale, I think, of, of, of people trying to do that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's strange. I think it's like, because it, the premise has so little relevance to real life, <laughs> the actual kind of the class war angle for me doesn't land at all. Like, I don't, because it doesn't refer to the actual struggles that people in genuine poverty in their current moment experience. It's a kind of ludicrous sci-fi version of that, <laughs> which is is fun to watch, but also like it's not saying anything about society at all, even though it sort of pretends to be having a, an opinion on that. Yeah. I, I think that's often the problem, like even with the film High Rise, <laughs> that, which is the adaptation of the, the Ballard novel. And it's just like, 
yeah, constructing society as a giant tower from bottom to top doesn't say anything about how power really works. No, um, it's it's really tricky to do that thing where you model inequality into the architecture of the right. world and then, you know, play it out. I mean, I think Parasite does an amazing job of it, but it's an exception, mm. not the rule. Uh, Day yeah, of the uh, no, Dawn of the Dead as well is a, is a very good version of it too. But yeah, I, good, yeah, yeah. But I think it is a hard a hard sell uh, uh, on your audience. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because there's a moment in High Rise where a man just crawls up a chute to the roof and is therefore in the upper classes, and that's just like <laughs> no. The point is that these societal shifts are like totally the gatekeepers who stop people from moving forwards and actually accessing. Um, so the idea of just climbing up a, yeah. a crawl space to access it is just, it's just stupid. Yes, no one ever told Karl Marx about vents. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite video game, actually. Like Video games rely very much on vents. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So uh, let's talk about our kind of... I need to think of a better name for this segment, but I guess a sort of deep dive into uh, one particular show that, uh, we've, that fascinates us. And uh, as I said before, what we're going to do is talk in random amount general terms about the show so that we don't spoil anything. And then I will put in a suitably egregious sound effect to let you know that we're about to talk about spoilers. And that's when you can skip ahead or stop listening and watch devs instead. So, Jamie, I wonder, like, how would you describe devs to someone without spoiling it? And I've asked you that question because it's a difficult question to answer and I don't want to do it. It is, it is a difficult question because it is a show that takes a, quite a lot of its energy from being elusive about its mm-hmm. own nature. And that goes as far as even the title being a kind of uh, cipher itself. Um, mm. yep. But what it is, is it's a American science fiction thriller series about a mysterious computing company run by Nick Offerman's character, Forrest and about how a young woman called Lily becomes embroiled in their mysterious goings-on after her boyfriend kind of comes into their clutches. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that the show is basically focused mainly on the philosophical notions of free will and determinism as kind of these core ideas at the centre of it, the notion that the future is fixed and that, you know, we all just sort of go through the motions towards these inevitabilities so yeah when i first saw devs pop up on uh, iplayer just from the name alone the way that it looked i assumed very wrongly that it was going to be some sort of quite dry silicon valley the social network type show and it's not that actually at all (laughs) like it's very very much more Again, without going into too much detail, uh, as Jamie says, like you're completely right. It's Silicon Valley horror, basically, and it's, it extrapolates from a lot of the kind of Facebooks, the Amazons of this world, into future tech and dresses that up in a lot of thriller intrigue and and sometimes horrible murder. <laughs> um, and and for that, like I think uh, it, the show has real ups and downs, but I think as a premise and, and as the way it's executed, I would really recommend it to anyone at the moment. Yes, it's kind of, it, it does, I, I think it's absolutely right, it has its ups and downs, and but I think what it ends up with is really quite something, it's really quite powerful, in a way that kind of took me by surprise, you know, after the final episode, I, I did that thing where the next day I was just sort of wandering around thinking about devs, you know, it really kind of got yeah, to me yep. in, in, in a kind of unusual way. 
And it really is a, a very, un, you know, I think one of the qualities that kind of marks out it is very unusual. It looks different. It sounds different. It's got this amazing music by, um, yeah. by Jeff Barrow of Portishead, among others. It's got an interesting, unusual cast kind of drawn from across the world. And there's even a, a, a character of a young boy who is played by a female actress. There's all yeah, sorts right. of interesting stuff going on there just on the kind of production level. Uh, as well as the kind of the setting itself being this kind of extraordinary space uh, that I think, you know, even aside from the writing and the the, the conceptual stuff and the, and the performances, which are all for the most part tipped up, it mm. feels strange and unusual without seeming weird or, well, not, it is kind of weird, but it doesn't seem particularly arch. You know, no one's wearing reflective sunglasses in this. No one's wearing a trench coat. You know, it's 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 a very very plausible look. It's strange to say that it's a grounded modern sci-fi because I've been fascinated by how television and films recently have found increasingly creative ways to present technology in a way that is visually exciting and not just someone sort of just staring at a phone while a sort of pop-up of text appears, like Sherlock does. And you know, that show does that well, to be honest. But uh, in the very first episode of Devs, there's a like a, quite a long scene where a man just stares at code rolling in front of his eyes and then becomes increasingly horrified and then goes into a bathroom and vomits through sheer horror. And that's a bit new. <laughs> I quite like that. I like the idea that, uh, you know, that technology can access horrendous forces that we've not yet realized and that this man confronts this and is just like viscerally opposed to the whole yes. nature of it i think that's i think that's right and actually i think one of the things that the show kind of gave me which i wasn't sort of expecting is is this kind of the horror and the claustrophobia of a of a kind of deterministic outlook on the world you know right yes yes especially in those final episodes you get a sense of the kind of madness of it and the kind of, you know, you actually get to look into, it feels relatable in unusual ways. You can actually sort of feel yourself being pulled into this sense of claustrophobia by this philosophy and by the, by the, the playing out of this philosophy on real characters. You kind of, it puts you there in a, in a, in an unusual, uh, unusually powerful way, I think. I think that's absolutely there's something right. quite Lovecraftian about it, almost. In I, agree, of... I agree with that. Yeah, it's it's just looking into the abyss and it ruining people. Like that's a real theme of the show as well, uh, and just completely like changing their worldview, um, which is which is wonderful. I think like this is a good time to dip into spoiler territory. Before yeah. I do that, I'll just uh, say that so the writer, executive producer, and director is Alex Garland, who made uh, Ex Machina, uh, Annihilation. Um, he wrote dread which i love um and 28 days later and i think a big part of the show's appeal is thanks to rob hardy who's the cinematographer and this i think this whole show is beautifully shot and it has some just really memorable imagery that has stayed with me ever since i watched it eight months ago um, absolutely me too right so having sort of like summed the show up and now we're like post spoiler warning stuff i think like what you picked up on about the horror of the mindsets that the premise creates is absolutely like what I was fascinated by. So for example, you've got Nick Offerman uh, as Forrest and Alison Pill as Katie. And they're a couple who have basically, they've discovered this machine that supposedly predict the future and everything is deterministic, but their response to that is utterly nihilistic and they use it as a way to take no moral responsibility for any of their actions because their view is uh, anything we do is justified 
because it was always going to happen and we've got no free will so it doesn't matter and that was i think that's a great horror concept yes not to get into the bad stuff you know straight away but i think a slight weakness of the show is it can't quite clarify that in its sort of final moments it kind of there is something about those characters well i guess what i mean is 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 that they are psychopaths in one sense you know it's made them into psychopaths and yet the characters we're left with don't feel like that they feel kind of too human and i think i mean i think the show does play a lot with uncertainty uh, in quite kind of where we're supposed, how we're supposed to feel by the end of it. That said, I think generally the characters themselves are, are quite special. I think particularly Nick Offerman, his, mm. his performance, it, it's a, it is a real thing, that performance. And I think it's a, it kind of, it is the promise of that actor really paying off, you know, because obviously Ron Swanson is a great character and. Right. But everything I've seen from him since then has been kind of parodic in some sense or kind of arch and strange. And, and I think him as Forrest in Devs is just a really amazing performance. He just feels so real and so human, even with all his sort of inhumanity that drives him. I, I just think he's a really special creation. That's a, that's a fantastic character. Like, uh, I'd rewatch the first episode. I think the first episode is amazing in terms of just how many questions it gives the viewer that you desperately want to be resolved, which is obviously a very good thing to start a series with. But I came to Nick Offman via Parks and Rec, where he plays Ron Swanson. So I'm used to him being just very kind of deadpan and funny. And he is, as a person in real life, it seems like, based on his kind of social media presence. Uh, but this is really where he breaks out of that box. And he's, he's not, like, the, it's because he's so, normal in lots of is a kind of this is where it comes it becomes a kind of interesting comment on the silicon valley where is there's this kind of guy in just a loose shirt with shaggy hair who isn't corporate but he has his malice like and also there's something deeply wrong with him at the same time and the way he uses people uh is is just very good sinister it right actually does remind me of ex machina which garland did where which is a different but it, it also involves an innocent, unsuspecting person coming into the clutches of a Silicon Valley maniac. <laughs> but I think this, for me, this works much more because of Nick Hoffman's performance and because of like the way he's presented and even the dialogue. He's just brilliantly sort of dead inside. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and he has this sort of, he has this, that kind of, there's almost something cliche. I mean, there is something cliche about the mad scientist wanting to, right. um, build his god machine to bring his family back from the dead but again this show finds such unusual ways to spin through that and past it i think that uh i think another film that did it really well recently is into the spider-verse which has a similar kind of notion at its heart you know i think what's what's great what, what both these sort of things do really well is they kind of there is the kind of it's the Frankenstein's monster nature of that stuff, you know, that really kind of, but again, like where this show sort of what I was driving at vaguely earlier, where the show ends up with Offerman's uh, character and, and, and Lee Chan basically now living inside a simulated reality re- within the, the system. Yeah. It's a, 
it's a very it's a very strange place to end up and i don't know how much of the uncertainty i feel about it it's part of why i woke up in the morning after watching it with a kind of keening sense of sadness or whether it's not whether it's actually a flaw in the show that they can't quite finish that character they can't quite pay him off yeah and i don't think the show's not quite sure like how much you're supposed to feel sorry for forest yeah um and like it's very hard to feel sorry for him, but they try and sort of make him seem a bit more human later on when you they actually see his... They spend a whole episode making him seem human, don't they? When he goes outside with, with her, with, it's a character called Jamie, actually, I think. Is that right? Uh, he plays frisbee with him, yeah. And yeah. like, oh, he's a normal suburban bloke. He's fine. But actually, based on the many hours of the show I've watched, he's not fine at all. <laughs> he's terrible. No. He's a, he's a disaster. Um, and at the, at the very end, that kind of payoff for, for Forrest that he kind of gets, sort of reunited with his family in a way it's like i don't know it's not supposed to be a morality tale so it doesn't like he's not deserved an unhappy ending like he's not the bad guy who deserves to be murdered but i don't know what i was supposed to feel about it like like you i was was puzzling it out well it's it's noted in the writing i think this must be a question that they asked themselves as they were making this show Mm. because the whole the whole storyline with linden um, who is the guy who, the little boy who brings in the notion of multiple universes into right, death yeah. and thereby solves the problem that they've been having. But because in Offerman's mind, that is, a, you know, from a different reality that you're sort of drawing these images and, 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 uh, and projections, then it's not real. It's not his daughter if it comes right. from somewhere else. And, and therefore alludes- it's not his fault that. Yes, you know everything has happened, right? So he's again everything's about relieving himself of guilt at the expense of uh, of other people. And I I think that that notion is a bit of a construction in the writing to try and, and to try and find a way of making that character of of Forrest pay off. And he says in that final scene between him and Lily, he says something like, you know there is an alternative reality where we ended up somewhere bad, and it might it's basically like we went to hell in another version of events. And that is, that is how we pay for what we're doing. Um, which is an, an interesting idea, an interesting notion doesn't quite make sense. I don't think. And, mm. and I think is trying to do the work of saying like, well, these two characters get everything they ever wanted, but there's infinite other versions that get damned, you know, and the show just doesn't, hasn't made enough space, um, really within, you know, some of that time spent with the unkillable Mr. Killimuk, unstoppable security chief, um, yeah. or, the, the... or the Russian spies that shouldn't have been in there, you know, perhaps yep, yep. some of that time might have been spent really getting into that that notion that within determinism is this, that sort of working, a, a, contra to determinism is this kind of quantum theory of multiple universes. Um which I think the show is trying to build into its narrative and it's just too big a concept to fit into the show, I think. Yeah, it's also because like what they've done is they've taken on um, an enormous, unsolvable philosophical question and tried to turn it into a thriller. Um, and for me, this is where the show kind of falls down the most because um, in episodes like two and three and perhaps four a bit, it tries to be a sort of international espionage thriller for a bit. Um, and then it sort of dumps that off once they've killed all the characters who who were actually relevant to that plot line. Um, and then it's not until like probably episode six where you actually get the real stakes of the show, um, which is the moment where uh, Katie uh, describes to Lily, uh, they have this amazing face fake conversation. Um, and Alison Pill does an amazing job of just being sort of like bloodlessly still 
all the time like she, she's amazingly kind of cold and detached and like you, you get the sense that she's sort of her perspective uh, thanks to devs has been destroyed to the extent that she doesn't even think like a human anymore um which is amazing and she she's basically talking to uh she's talking to lily about determinism and she just rolls a pencil towards her across across the table um and sort of reveals to her the full horror of her worldview <laughs> um and th- at that point she says oh uh, so we've, we've built this godlike simulation that can deterministically predict what's going to happen in the future but it ends next week uh, and we don't know why and for me like it's crazy that they left that to the end of the series because like uh i, I kind of understand it but like if that's really what that, that was the biggest holy fuck moment for me of that mm. show yeah i was like whoa what could that mean that is and they can't quite deliver it, i don't think but like yeah i just wonder what your thoughts about that i i think it's i mean i think there is a I think there's kind of two things here. I think one is that this project, I think, started as a film and then was turned into a TV show. Uh, And that creates, if only in Alex Garland's mind, you know, because, uh, and I think I read an interview with him where he talked about the economics. If this podcast goes on for a while, I think one thing you'll hear me talking about a lot is is about the economics of television and, and how they impact on the kind of content of shows. Because eight episodes, like what this is, like... Is a is a good amount of episodes in terms of economics, in terms of the practicalities of making a TV show. What it isn't, I don't think, is a particularly good amount of time for a story to play out in. Mm. It's either too long or too short, and in this instance, it's too long. Yes. And I think eight hours is just too much time spent. And when you start beginning stories to fill in that time, you end up having to finish them. And this show has about a third too many stories and characters than it needs um and what that does i think is it stretches and warps the narrative itself so that things like you've just you've just mentioned absolutely deserves more space within the show to emerge and develop and then pay off um and i think if you were being uh, uh, kind of honest about alex garland's work is he often has that problem he often kind of has an organizational problem across his sort of films um where he doesn't quite know how i mean this this sounds like i'm sort of um patronizing or judging him i just think in in the work itself you kind of i often have this feeling of he doesn't know quite how to moderate his ideas across a story so like for example 28 days later which is a really great film for the first two thirds and then in the final third um right yeah it's soldiers and it's it's christopher eccleston or um, uh, the other one, I, <laughs> uh, which is the op- obviously the opposite of a story. And then uh, <laughs> the other one I think of is Sunshine, which he wrote the script of. Yeah, which has a right, fantastic right. beginning, a superb end, uh, but no middle. <laughs> it turns into a monster movie in the middle. And I think mm. similarly, I think um, Debs is his best effort yet, actually, of allowing the puzzle to form in the viewer's mind um, and allowing it to kind of build and develop. I do think it is a shame that there was a couple of episodes worth of TV there that just didn't need to be there. And I would have loved to have understood more about Lyndon and I would love to have understood more about, um, it was a character called Stuart. Cause I just thought he was a fantastic character. You know? Oh yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Just an amazing sort of person to have. And I would have just loved to have known more and, and spent more time. And I feel like that could have been our way in really to, to some of the fuzzier edges of this. So the reason, so you, you get that sort of, um, we talk about that humanizing episode where, uh, Forrest and Katie obviously 
like a family and they talk to Lily and Jamie, even though they know what's coming, sort of, um, that is going to be a disaster. And I, and why does the security man hate that? Like, I never ever understood why a security guy just went off the rails <laughs> having, cause like, he's just a, an employee. He's just a sort of thug. And there are, there are kind of a few moments like that where I just don't quite understand what the characters are supposed to be angry about or what their motivations really are. No. And, and again, it's, it's testament to how successful the show is in making you feel and empathize to those characters in that, again, quite a few of them don't get the final third of their character falling into place, you know? Right. Hmm. Um, and it's almost fatal to the show, but it ends up kind of being part of what makes it good. I think the character of Stuart, who is the guy who kind of causes the death in the end, you know, who kind hmm. of causes the catastrophe. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Having him recite Larkin's Oh, oh bad poem, which is a great poem, but you know, you know, he's, he's just a fascinating character. And I, I wonder, I'm just sort of questioning myself here, whether what makes me feel so strongly about that show the next day, as it were, is, is the lack of that stuff that actually makes it more sparing and more, it gives me space to kind of put my own feelings into it a bit more. Because so many shows, they kind of like to lock themselves up from the night, you know, and kind of close the things down and answer every question. And this show purposefully doesn't answer questions and i think by chance just fails to answer some questions as well and i think maybe i think there's there's something in that i think uh, yeah so there is actually i agree there's a, a kind of value to just leaving things a bit ambiguous and actually letting the viewers stew on stuff and also given that the, you know <laughs> the debates around free will and determinism are not resolved even in the slightest in among academic circles the idea that this show is going to resolve all that it was never going to happen, but all you can hope for is the resolution to your character's arcs and where they end up and a kind of satisfying development of, of what they're doing. And I think it sort of half gets there, I would mm. say. It's, it's funny, isn't it? But show, it, it shows you something new and like, you know, there's so much, I do think with TV generally, there's this kind of tendency to really go overboard in how people praise things and how people kind of talk about the, sh- the show at the moment. And personally speaking, I think you know, what I really like is to be, is to be shown something new, you know, is to be kind of given a new experience by a show. And those last couple of episodes, uh, as I alluded to before, the spoiler clacks and like the sense of claustrophobia there, the sense of having a conversation with someone that you know they've already had, what they've already, they've already watched themselves have. Yeah, that's That nice. they've experienced themselves speaking the word that they're speaking to. And, and Alison Pills terror, you know, as we get into the sequence that has been watched by these people again and again, she still says the same line. And you believe that she would in that moment, you know, right. still talk about being scared, even though she's seen herself say that so many times. Yeah. There was something genuinely unnerving about that, which I, I really liked. And I thought all the actors, especially those three in that sequence, really solved, really like solved the notion of almost like moving through treacle in this sort of deterministic nightmare really good yeah there's a kind of there's a bit where they're walking from like so there's a bit where lily sees the footage of what she's about to do and then they there's almost like a death march where they go through like three rooms and they're all going through the motions i think like one of the big kind of sort of magic nonsense moments of the films is the bit where lily throws the gun out of the chamber because it's not clear why she can exercise free will but 
Nick Hoffman's character, Forrest, or Pill's character, Katie, can't, um, because well, they've had the opportunity to for having this machine in their lives for so long and having seen this coming for uh, like years. Um, but yeah, it's, I a think- pecu- it's a peculiar moment because like, later on he kind of says, well, it was disobedience, basically saying, like, you're Eve. And you're kind of like, as if you were kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. She's Eve, is she? Uh, all right then. <laughs> uh, you, you sort of pulled that out of your ass. Um, yeah. And also, uh, and also, like, so they didn't have to kill Sergei at the beginning. They could have just not hired him. This is the, obviously this goes back to the free will determinist debate, but they are like actual cognizant murderers <laughs> for what they did at this, like, throughout the show, in fact. And so the fact that she's able, like, Lily's able to break out of it just seems arbitrary. Um, mm. But again, like, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a small thing. Like, as a whole, I still love the show. I think it's brilliant. I've no idea what they'd do with the second series. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think they could. I don't think, I, I think know. he's, I think he's talked about doing another show with the same cast, which I think is a lovely idea, actually. Yeah. Brilliant cast. I, brilliant I, cast. I, I, Cause I think they're all amazing, sort of top to bottom. Even, even the, even the bad characters are played by really interesting kind of actors. And, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, I would, um, I would credit actually in terms of the type plotting, I would credit Alex Garland with writing Dread. It's just like, uh, and I think like he, he benefits from being, from writing a, a genre piece where you're in an action film mold and actually like what he said about the film is that like originally they had a much bigger plot involving judge death which is a big kind of very odd character in the 2080 fiction but they ended up just doing a kind of monster of the week self-contained almost bottle action film where you go up a tower and fight a boss yeah. and it's brilliant it's so good, and um, is the, the realization of dread and uh, uh, and his partner is just it's fantastic. Yeah, it's, really good. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that film, and 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 I, I'm sure, like me, you're like whenever a film just wants to do one thing, like it's, it's always good. One thing, and it's got great one thing. Love one thing. <laughs> Absolutely love that one thing you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. God, yeah, uh, but yeah, Death throws a lot in. I, I I think it's brilliant. As we've discussed, it's kind of pros and cons at length. But yeah, I, if you, anyone listening has any thoughts about devs. Or determinism, or free will. Um, <laughs> then email us at crankrobot uh, at gmail dot com. Uh, so, uh, is there anything else we've been uh, watching, Jamie, at the moment? Uh, yeah. So, I've been really enjoying the Shivering Truth, which I've almost seen all of now. It's quite a hard show to watch uh, right. in, in great quantities, um, but it's very easy to find if you're in the UK. At least it's on four OD, and the episodes are only ten minutes long. Uh, what it is, is a animated show, stop motion animation, uh, of these kind of, <laughs> I realize as I'm talking about it, I don't quite know how to describe it. They are these kind of self-contained sort of narratives, which have this kind of nightmare dreamlike logic to them and kind of, uh, kind of unfold in a kind of nightmarish fashion where sort of things kind of turn into other things. And it has a kind of body horror vibe to it. And it is uh, narrated in this kind of the way of almost like a kind of diabolical Twilight Zone narrator. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing. It's it's horrifying. It's, it's sort of disgusting and um, upsetting, violent. Uh, and it's also kind of beautiful. <laughs> I, I kind of can't quite get my head around how good it is really it's the same animation studio who made that film anomalisa a few oh, years ago which yeah. is a charlie kaufman film mm. and it has a similar attention to detail which in that film was often to the sort of effect of of being rather romantic uh, you know or sort of powerful 
But in uh, The Shivering Truth, it kind of ends up being really unnerving. <laughs> um, and I, I've just been blown away by it. It's quite hard to remember the content of episodes because I think like the most incoherent dreams, they don't follow a narrative really that your brain can piece together. But what they do, I think, is really kind of get to you in a sort of bodily way, which kind of triggering all your sort of disgust nodes and kind of the sort of fever dream slash hallucinogenic experience sort of horny vibe of the whole thing is just really something that I can get behind. I'm kind of, I kind of in love with the show, really. It's gross and upsetting and it's not funny, which I think is quite interesting. I mean, I was talking yeah. earlier about the kind of the, you know, the, the unfunniness of kind of prompt, unprompted, sort of prompted banter on TV shows. And I do think that the timbre of jokes when things aren't funny can be one of the most unnerving vibes that you can sort of produce. Mm. And um, I've seen criticism about the shivering truth that it's not funny. It's definitely not funny. It's, it's Is it kind trying of, to be? I don't even think it's trying to be. No, no exactly. It, it has the kind of vibe of a comedy sketch or a Terry Gilliam animation or something like that, but it does it to such unsettling effect that, yeah, I think it's really out on its own and, and unique. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I was watching the first episode the other day, and um, there's a guy in his apartment who's sort of dealing with some very strange stuff, and another man, a bold man just walks in, and there's a sort of like you're not sure what their relationship is and there's this deep unfamiliarity between them except that the bold guy is like really over familiar like are they related are they in a relationship like what is this and then something horrible grows out of his head <laughs> um and that's the kind that's the kind of stuff you're looking at with the with this show um which i i absolutely love it kind of reminds me of um oh there was a bbc2 show was it monkey dust yes um and it's, it's not the same but it's a sort of it's a major channel investing in very very dark um, subject matter uh, for for reasons I don't understand, <laughs> but I, I greatly I greatly enjoy. Yes, and, and and I think it's also very similar to Jam, uh, the Chris Morris oh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of sketch show uh, from the early noughties. I think it's directly inspired by that, in fact, because a lot of it is uh, kind of it's kind of. Uh, if you remember that show, Chris Morris would sort of start off every episode by kind of narrating a kind of dark parable um, about something, and, and and for the Shivering Truth, that's kind of the whole the whole vibe of the show. Except he's telling extended stories about like cathedrals made out of skin, and and uh, there's one amazing episode about a woman who you know desires to be beautiful, so she kind of. I can't even remember by the we- means by which she does it, but she ends up with a whole face of beauty spots. So her whole head is kind of cocooned in these spots and she oh, kind of gosh. becomes this kind of bizarre angelic, uh, sort of figure sort of, and then, and then every episode has some brilliant kind of madness in it where it becomes some sort of, it almost has that Rick and Morty vibe where there seems to be an infinite regress heading, but you know, hiding behind every corner and, a sort of snake eating its tail, uh, sort of vibe to things as well. And yeah, it's, it's just gross <laughs> and just really, really thrilling, uh, in its own horrible way. <laughs> I, I think like there's a, there's a sort of surface horror to it, which is obviously the imagery and what's actually happening on the screen. Um, but the sheer sort of plotlessness of it is also just throws you out for a loop. Like the fact that there is no kind of 
act structure to grasp onto, and no. that a scene could go in any direction at any time. It mostly a bit of Limmy show actually as well. Yeah. Um, and that is kind of the way that puts you out of your comfort zone is super effective. I think it's really clever. It is, and it and it kind of ends up being quite bodily again. And I've said that a couple mm. of times already this episode, but like because it's sort of speaking to you on an unconscious level almost. It's kind of really talking. It's almost like it's in conversation with your nightmares rather than because there's so <laughs> right. much in there that you recognise. You know, I think in how things change and develop in a in a nightmare. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's such an interesting. Um, hybrid of as you say body horror and just like physical horror but also horrible social awkwardness um like it, they, they really pack it all in <laughs> they get all of the sort of they get all the nightmares into one 10 minute segment and uh, that's very impressive i mean I, I watched one today which was about a you know a sort of i mean as as with all of these things it kind of came from a million crazy directions but it was about this guy trying to get his get this woman to fall in love with him and he had this uh, machine that would tell him if she was in love with him and it just involved her like sitting across from him in a chair and just kind of going like pardon me from this noise but just like going, and she was just like straining Gosh. to make herself fall in love with him uh, uh, uh. and it was just bizarre and like that is just the start that is the first step on a story that becomes like exponentially more insane they end up like falling in love and then putting that machine in like a, they end up using that machine to like fight other robots in an underground, <laughs> it's an underground God fighting ring because they've also, yeah. had, they've also managed to extract God uh, from things. And it's, it's like, it's, it's mental and brilliant. Yeah, we should send a link to Charlie Brooker for the next uh, series of uh, Black Mirror and it might yeah. end, up, end up being quite a lot stranger. I think you'd like uh, it. I actually think it's quite a lot more successful in Black than Black Mirror at points at sort of describing our current psyche. You know, there's something about that kind of overdriven, over-anxious, porny, weird, violent vibe, which feels very, <laughs> very, very current in a, in a funny uh, It feels very, very internet. Yeah. So anyone can access this imagery and content in a way that we've never been able to before quite yeah yeah uh, yeah speaking of black mirror we're inevitably going to talk about black mirror i think um but my favorite episode of the whole series i think is um the entire history of you from series one which uh, was written by jesse armstrong who wrote um peep show um and that uh is a classic science fiction story in like in a, a really old school sense that there's one key piece of technology, um, but the it's the show is not about the technology itself; it's about what it does to the people who use it um, and how they leverage it against one another. And that technology is that uh, they can never forget anything. <laughs> and it's about these two people who are in a relationship, and at any point they can sort of um, replay memories uh as though they're just happening in front of them and they can display memories to one another uh and they they use it uh in incredible like increasingly horrible domestic strife to torment each other um and that is that's what black mirror should be for me like that's a the, the great promise of the show that it should be like a twilight zone horror thing uh that has these great sci-fi ideas as well Yes, I thought that one was very good. I think my favourite one is the Christmas one they did. I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, they did a, it's called White Christmas, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And it's very, very good because it's three different stories on a theme that build to kind of one central story. Right. Um, and it's, I really recommend it, actually. It's horrible. <laughs> Again, it's really nasty. It's, it's some of the nastiest stuff that show did. Um, and also really rather uh, uh, 
kind of emotional. It, it, it kind of does that connect, I think, more successfully than anything else. I mean, I do like that show, but I think because it has three distinct acts, each of which kind of in relation to how we were talking about devs earlier in, in that episode, it's 90 minutes long. So it's extra long mm. and each act is a different story. And each story adds a new piece to the puzzle of the kind of, of central technology that we're talking about in that, in that particular sort of story. And there's a meta narrative around it with, with, um, uh, uh, oh God, I've forgotten the actor's name. Uh, Rafe Spall, Rafe Spall, uh, there's a sort of surround meta narrative around it, which, which, and he's being told these tales by John Hamm plays the other character and it builds to this kind of, sense of horror which is just really really good and, and, and powerful as well so yeah that's the one i recommend as well and also it's amazing how um john ham does have like a really good sense of humor actually like a really good comic timing and ability to actually play very different people to don draper which is obviously the character he will forever be associated with um which is great to see yes and it's, it's good because in in white christmas he's playing someone who is is a is a con man basically he's almost like kind of a, a black mirror version of don draper uh in that he's this charming guy who uh, who is deeply deeply awful and corrupt and there's there's one moment where he tortures anyone who's seen it will know this moment where he tortures a simulated personality by putting them through basically four months of isolation in a featureless void and eats a, oh piece, of, eats a piece of toast while he does it which is uh yeah <laughs> quite something <laughs> that's good that's good black mirror that, that's get that in my veins that's awesome yeah it's good yeah it's um i think like a lot of people know black mirror for like san junipero which is actually like a kind of genre shift for the show where it stopped being a kind of twilight zone and actually was uh something a bit more like a bit deeper about like romance and it was a bit more humorous and a bit lighter. Yeah. I thought um, it was lovely. I thought it was really, it was good, really beautiful. Yeah. And um, that was at the result of partly a move to Netflix as well. where The show has a much bigger budget and, it, um, and that has pros and cons. Uh, the pros being San Junipero, the cons being the episode about bees, <laughs> <laughs> the robot bees, um, which I enjoyed, but I love the show. I, I enjoyed it, but uh, not, not the, not the high point of the black mirror. No. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, let's move on to the final segment. Uh, and we're going to talk, we're sort of like trying to do a list feature. This is all experimental. So uh, this is a subject to change. Um, but we wanted to talk this Although these, time. These lists aren't subject to change. These, these, these lists are written in granite and will never be changed. Oh, 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 yeah, absolutely. These lists are <laughs> cannot be disputed. Yeah. Um, but uh, the segment could change every time. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, we, we sort of like, uh, I don't know why, really, but uh, we thought we'd round up some of our favourite arguments in film and TV. Just like flaming rows, just like deeply passive aggressive uh, conflicts. Um, and, yeah, so we, we both put a few to the table uh, just to kind of explore them and why they're good. Uh, so I think Jamie should go first. Okay, so in no particular order, order, I'm going to go with my first pick being Boiling Point, the original Gordon Ramsay documentary, which he kind of doesn't want you to see. I think you can find <laughs> you can you can find Beyond Boiling Point really easily, and that was the show that they made later. 
about him like a year or so later. And that's like a six-part series or a three-part series. But Boiling Point, which was the original documentary and the kind of first time Gordon Ramsay had been put on screen, is this kind of fabulous exploration of madness and rage. And it Mm. takes place around Gordon Ramsay setting up his uh, Royal Hospital Road restaurant, which I've eaten at several times back in the day when I had more money than cents, um, and is fabulous. Uh, However, there is a point in it where on the opening night of the restaurant, the air conditioning at the restaurant has failed. There's no one who can come around to sort it out. The kitchen's getting hotter. He's already fired two people on the spot, and there's going to be a show on telly that night that kind of talks about him being a horrible boss and a bully. And I think what he's doing is he's shouting at someone who's telling him that they can't come and fix the air conditioner. And just for a moment, and the other guy is, is, is sort of coming back at him. And just for a moment, he entirely loses his sanity and starts talking about how the people who were supposed to come and fix the air conditioning units are in fact staying at home watching a TV program about what a bully he is. Um, and it's just this wonderful moment of a man entirely losing his grasp on reality uh, <laughs> and screaming, screaming at his employee, just just nonsense, you know. And you can see the places, the restaurant is so hot, everyone's just completely lost their minds. And, yeah, it's just a wonderful glimpse of madness. So, yeah, that's... Uh, that's my my first pick. <laughs> I, I love um, I love uh, Gordon Ramsay's early stuff. So like uh, because he's kind of sort of a monster in some ways. <laughs> so uh, episode one of uh, the UK edition of Kitchen Nightmares is like Deep Fried Masters, an extraordinary work of accidental comedy, um, and uh, for reasons which we summed up by uh, so I'll just briefly quote from the uh, the Wikipedia summary. Um, uh, so Ramsey quickly identifies the restaurant as having two ma- major issues. Firstly, the fine dining menu has no appeal to the working class locals. Uh, and secondly, the head chef, 21, is inexperienced out of his depth. Evidence to when he first unwittingly serves Ramsey expired scallops, which causes him to vomit. And then he proves unable to make an omelette. Um, and trust me, that spread out over 20 minutes is fantastic television. Like, it's really, really good. Seeing, uh, seeing Ramsey throw up in in the backyard of, of some godforsaken pub in Wales is uh, just a kind of such a kind of uh, a contrast to the way he presents himself normally as being this kind of masterful uh, chef and restaurant uh, restaurateur. Um, and uh, I, I won't I won't say how it ends up. It's just priceless. It's I'm, absolutely perfect. I'm kind of in awe of him. Like occasionally, what will happen yes. on Kitchen Nightmares is like someone will flip out at him and start screaming at him and like get up in his face and he doesn't even blink, you know, (laughs) he'll just be like going like, yeah, yeah, just sort of doing that at them. And it's just, it's there's just something about that kind of unflickering psychopathy from him that I just, (laughs) I'm always here for. And even like the American version of Kitchen Nightmares, which is ridiculously formulaic, you know? Uh, Yeah, for sure. Like it's so formulaic, but also um, the producers are obviously hunting down, some of the craziest people in the country <laughs> for him to sort of butt heads with. Yeah, for this uh, three Michelin-starred chef to come and, like, shout out <laughs> and belittle and, like, yeah. This little family restaurant who make good pizzas, uh, and he's just telling them all to fuck off. It's like, I mean, it's harsh, but brilliant <laughs> at the same time. Well, they sort like, of it's rolled like, it out to, like, Gordon Ramsay goes and stays at your hotel as well and shouts at your it, cleaning staff as well. Yeah, so that hotel show is super weird because he goes in there with, like, a dark light, I was like, oh, this is covered in spunk. <laughs> I was like, Gordon Ramsay, what do you know about hotels and why are you doing this? It's like, 
why are you of all people? <laughs> why are you qualified? Um, yeah, they should uh, just sort yes. of open it out for Gordon Ramsay to just go and experience anything. Any, oh, it should any... be like a, a Louis Theroux kind of uh, <laughs> weekend adventures. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that would be wonderful. Um, I'm sure he, he would do it. If, if, I, I'm sure he would take up any opportunity to go and shout at some poor people <laughs> in a provincial location about their shitty thing, whatever it is. He's, he's very good at shouting at, uh, at people who um, really don't deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so what would be your second argument? Oh, I'm going again. Okay. Uh, well, yeah, I guess we'll. Uh, all right. So my second argument, I'm going to go for the um, uh, the bit in the film Hereditary. I think most of mine can be described as bollocking rather than arguments, but I guess okay, yeah, well, it's, that's a, it's a kind of argument. Uh, the bit in the film Hereditary, which is a film I quite like, didn't love. I think I preferred Midsummer. However, mm. the scene in Hereditary where Tony Collette's character completely loses her shit with her son and her family around the dinner table is uh the the the, the uh, sorry excuse me stuffing the emotional center of that film the the spiritual center of that film you know it's a, it's a ghost story and it's a sort of demon story and all that sort of stuff but actually the bit that is most terrifying the bit that feels the most real is how genuine her sorrow and rage and anger towards her son who's done this terrible thing you know um how all that feels um and it almost seems it's got a kind of it's got such a, a resonance to it, just almost in how she's speaking. It just seems to sort of blast out of the screen as you're watching it. And I think it's again just very, very. It sets the tone for the rest of the film, but actually, it almost renders the rest of the film irrelevant because it is in that bleak kind of truth to what she's saying and how she's delivering it, that that film kind of finds its way. And actually it doesn't really need the demonic possession stuff. I mean, it does because they need to make a film, but like (laughs) for for me, I think, you know, that moment was just the real peak of what that film was trying to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk more. I think we should just do a horror film um, episode, I think, because um, Midsommar is fascinating in relation to that film because it um, front loads the family drama for, one of the main characters uh, and it's actually a film about uh, a vulnerable woman slowly losing her shit with her shitty friends um, in a way that's kind of magnificently presented and with some just extraordinary brutal scenes as well. Uh, it's really an extraordinary horror film. Yes, it is. And it, and it kind of, I think even though hereditary kind of on paper, I, I sort of would think I would prefer because it has a kind of, I don't know, there's there's a sort of embracing of tradition with that film, but kind of how it plays with that and how it kind of brings like genuine grief uh, into right. into a kind of genre story that I think is like a story of demonic possession, you know, but actually... It's like a poltergeist, but with actual like genuine depth to it. Yeah. The characters. Yeah, but actually, even though Midsummer is in its own way more formulaic, really, uh, it kind of... Uh, I don't know that that film really got to me. <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to, and it did. Yeah, I think look, Submitsum is in the kind of like Wicker Man tradition of like uh, going to a rural place and having all. Um, it's like it, it, this is quite Shakespearean as well. You go to the forest and all the social rules you're used to are upended, um, and then horrifying and perhaps like transcendental things start to happen, um, which is why I prefer Midsummer 
I think a big site, as you say, I think Hereditary is very much like quite tied to its genre. I think if you get it right, you can kind of, it's almost an impossible trick to pull, but the, the Wicker Man does a good job of it. And I think Midsummer does a fair job of it too. If you can make the kind of syntax of the film start to feel demonic and unsettling, you know, hmm. if you can kind of somehow the exorcist is the one that does it too. Like some, a lot of the most scary films, I think, do a really great job of finding ways to subtly frighten you rather than go for the big moments and to kind of frighten you in ways that you're not even consciously aware of or not really noticing. Yeah. Um, uh, another good film for that is Kill List. Like Kill List is a film where oh, yeah, yeah, not yeah. much occurs, really. There's not much horror on display, really, but the film, and, and that film is basically one argument, really, as well, that film just starts to kind of, it's almost like you're, to use a childish uh, example, it's almost like you're sort of wearing Voldemort's Horcrux around your neck when you're watching it. It just starts to sort of weigh you down, you know, and, and sap your soul. That's, there's a, yeah, again, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's a, there's a point in that film where you sort of fall off a cliff and it goes into um, full wild territory, which um, Midsummer does as well, actually. I think it's, it's quite a common uh, horror thing. Um, but Kill This is also, uh, disturbingly recognizably urban in the sense of like, it's like, it could be where I live, <laughs> yeah. where this is, this has happened, which can't be said for Midsummer, where it's obviously, they've escaped this kind of, um, I love that Scandinavia in that film is sh- shorthand for, <laughs> for occult yes. people. <laughs> Sweden, <laughs> and I, Sweden and or Norway or whatever. Just completely <laughs> lo- lovely Scandinavian countries that you definitely would not, uh, ever associate, like, with perfectly lovely people. And it's like, for some reason, <laughs> this film has decided that they're, uh, they're a hive of scum and villainy. Um, yeah. Uh, or not. Yeah, it's, it's quite, uh, that's quite good. The sort of, yeah, the, the idea of Scandinavia is full of contrast. murderous pagan death cults. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant film. Oh, good stuff. Um, so I could do one, or you could do your you could do your next one if you like. All right, I'll, 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 since I've done two, I'll do one more. Um, uh, the movie "The End of the Tour," which is a really lovely movie, I don't think enough people have seen about uh, a guy who went to in real life is based on a true story. Who went to interview the writer David Foster Wallace just just after the publication of Infinite Jest. The writer is played by uh, Jesse Eisenberg. And David Foster Wallace is played by Jason Siegel, who is really, really perfect for the part. And the film itself is a kind of meditation on the notion of sort of talent and genius and the the kind of idea that, you know, how to describe genius, how to understand it and and kind of what it means between these two guys, one of whom is a sort of writer, journalist on the up and up, and the other who is this kind of confirmed genius, you know, Uh, and how they kind of learn to relate to each other or, or don't really. And there's a great, really great scene at the end of that movie where they've, they've, um, they've kind of gone on this journey together, gone on this book, book tour, tried to understand each other or rather Dave's character has tried to understand the Foster Wallace character. And they've kind of fallen out along the way, basically, mm. or, or they've kind of, slightly fail to relate to each other in the way they'd like. And it's just a scene where they've arrived back at the airport and they can't remember where he parked the car. Jesse Eisenberg's character can't remember where they parked the car. And there's just this moment of tension between them where Jason Segel's like, oh, well, why can't you remember? You should have remembered where you park it because then it would be easier than, you know, us having to wander around trying to find it, you know? And it just captures perfectly that feeling of if you've spent a lot of time with someone, 
the flashpoint yeah the flashpoint and it, and it isn't it's 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 a flashpoint but it is so that's it there's no other exchange after that it's just one moment of visible kind of irritation that is just mm. devastating because he's been trying to be amenable to this guy he's been trying to get this you know he's he thinks this guy is basically a god who walks on earth you know this guy who's written this amazing book you know that he feels you know describes the present moment perfectly and yet when it comes down to it he flirted with a girl the night before and that guy didn't like, and now he's making him pay for it. And they're kind of right, just, right. just, too, just, just, just mm. petty, you know? Um, yeah. And I just, I just love that because so many, you know, if you've ever fallen out with a friend, I think it's so more often that it's like that, that it's just one errant co- comment that then kind of causes a little freeze between you. than it is kind of, you know, fisticuffs or like even direct conflict seems so much rarer than it's, often portrayed in films i think everyone's socialized to be basically polite to each other um, with some exceptions so there, it's almost like it's not even passive aggressive but there's almost um sometimes the discomfort between people is kind of underlying thunderstorm and almost anything could set it off if it's been building up for long enough uh, and it could just be not be able to find a car it could be like oh, i've lost my keys or be late for a, a meeting or a date or something like that like i think like that sort of um like the film Sideways does this as well, uh, in a much more sort of like uh, idyllic middle class way, I suppose. Um, but just the idea that the relationships sort of they sort of can hinge on these absurdly pointless moments that basically mean nothing. Like <laughs> it's like it's not a real problem, but the real problems are obviously beneath the surface, and that's what erupts. It's funny. One of I think one of the best villains in recent cinema, cinema has been. Uh, it's in that that Cohen Brothers film, A Serious Man. Oh, yeah. Good it's one. a really wonderful film. And I think Underseen, again, I think more people should see it because I think they love yeah. it. But like the villain in that, who is called Cy Abelman, who is this kind of, who's this kind of like really softly spoken, like avuncular nice guy who is having basically trying to steal his, the, our protagonist's wife from him. Mm. And he just, he's so polite and lovely and he kind of yeah, embraces he, him in cuddles and brings wine open it let it breathe you know he's this kind of he's kind evil of, ned flanders basically he is and he is just like i just thought i remember seeing that film and thinking like yeah when the villains actually arrive in our life they don't they hardly ever they come in like a coming out of a thunderstorm you know or silhouetted against the sky they don't have they don't tend to have capes or, or no. pop collars like but, i don't know like it's so unfair they they do turn up with bottles of Manischewitz wine, you know. That's what that's how they, that's how they come into our lives, you know. And I just <laughs> I thought sort of astounding that like no one had ever really pulled that trick before, where this guy just like won't stop embracing him, won't stop like placating him before he's even said in the thing with these kind of, you know, even though he's basically just trying to steal his wife. I, I... Uh, that sort of sinister love bombing, but um, <laughs> that all happens, uh, but under the pretense of like very middle class social engagement. Like they're all attending to the rules of the dinner party, but everyone is has agendas. <laughs> Might be quite sinister. Um, yeah, that's I, I'm a big fan of that genre. <laughs> that's then, definitely it's a, like polite society's inability to like properly pass injustice, you know, to properly like or expose it, like to to conversation. It's like this has to happen under the surface all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's what I do. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, shall I do? An, yeah, yeah, that's yours. All right, all right. I'm going to start with um with girls, yep. which big fan of girls. I think it's brilliant. I think Nina Dunham has been 
very unfairly criticised in a lot of ways for writing the show because what she's done is she's she's written a, a cast of very flawed people who are sometimes assholes for comedic effect, and that is almost all sitcoms about men. <laughs> but suddenly it's about women, and there's a, a big problem. A lot of women, I think, who are producing mainstream popular culture are somehow expected to represent all women and sort of rather than like just write flawed, horrible characters. And I think that's what Lena Dunham does in Girls. Like they're all quite selfish and and messed up in different ways. And the the way this kind of exposes itself is like uh, the big kind of crucial point where it all comes out is a brilliant episode called I think it's called the Beach House. Yeah, Beach House, where they all go away together. And they just, they're going to have a lovely time together, just kind of like let off some steam. But it's an episode of just like one mounting argument between all of them that uh, results in a kind of cataclysm that almost destroys all their friendships. But it's also really cathartic. And they all come away from it, like actually valuing each other more and et cetera. It's it's, it's like, like, once you've got it out of your system and you feel a bit of guilt and want to actually apologize, suddenly like you can rebuild the relationship back up and sort of you've got, you've exercised that demon. And I think Dina Dunham writes brilliant arguments throughout that show, especially when it's about like relationships breaking down. But the beach house in particular is just like a, just a masterful, um, like it's the whole episode is just brilliant. Yeah, it's just a great example. She's a she's a really interesting case, I think, with Lena Dunham, because she's a sort of a victim of her own success in a kind of unusual way. Because I think she does she exactly is as you described, that she she sort of went out of her way to kind of, you know, portray these this, these female characters and as these flawed individuals. Um and to kind of like for example, her own character as this kind of ridiculously entitled, ridiculously self-important like slob essentially um yeah. and then i think because it's her playing her and i like lena dunham her, herself doesn't have the kind of modesty of her show like lena dunham herself has this habit or at least had a habit of kind of putting herself front and center at the uh, in certain conversations that were going on in culture at the time you know right she would kind of speak out on stuff that wasn't necessarily her place to speak out on it you know um and some of her like responses to you know race have been kind of provocative and things like that like Mm. i think she she sees herself as someone who's really trying to kind of put a cat amongst the pigeons and 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 take characters in in unusual places and i think she does an amazing job of that in girls i think it's slightly her fault in that she kind of takes part in conversations i know a lot of people feel this about her that really aren't her place to be there but I also think she's a victim of the fact that people identify with her in a slightly skewed way where they're sort of identifying with her, but they're also identifying with the character she portrays on the show. And, and, and I think that's unfortunate because I do think she is at heart, outside of her kind of profile, a really gifted and brilliant and sort of self-effacing writer, you know. So, yeah, and I think Girls is a, a really majestic achievement, actually. People are fond of pointing out that uh, you know, she got that show after a, after a sort of page and a half treatment or whatever as a sort of vision of, of kind of entitlement. But at the time, it wasn't. You know, at the time, it was something quite remarkable and something that really paid off, that she was this kind of person with a very distinct and singular set of skills. I sound like Liam Neeson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and was able to deliver that into a show that consistently tried to kind of engage with with a sense of identity of its protagonist. So I think, 
she's a she's a really unusual and interesting case. Yeah, I think was, I think this is interesting about the structure of girls is that so you've got four independent women making their way in New York, and what does that remind you of? Sex in the City, of course, like was hailed as kind of feminist achievement, even though I think it's kind of quite bad, <laughs> not helpful at all. But I think like that seemed almost deliberate. Like she's put like four archetypes of different women who are actually much more believable and much more normal people and actually like have normal arguments and normal relationships and fallouts and stuff, even as they are also portrayed as being occasionally like selfish or self-serving as everyone is. And I think that maybe that kind of subconscious association has created a weird gap between those shows. A weird thing is, is if you watch the very early episodes of Sex and the City, like the first part of the first series, it's basically the same show as Girls, which I always find is kind of crazy. You watch it and it has that kind of low level browns new york brownstones in the background kind of street level vibe to it uh, and a kind of slightly more aimless vibe to it and it's kind of interesting because as sex in the city went on it became more about the glamour almost and it kind of almost became more about right. a kind of performance of of femininity which i think became a kind of parody of femininity by those utterly wretched films and i think girls did a better job in kind of actually folding itself back on itself and, and kind of checking in with its own sense of, uh, you know, morality and, and identity as it went on, rather than this kind of sort of race to the top that you kind of got with something like Sex and the City. Yeah, and I, I can't help but think that the relationship between Carrie and Mr. Big in Sex and the City is, it, like, is torrid, but ultimately presented as being a glamorous social climbing exercise for both of them. And But I can't help but think that Adam Driver's role in Girls is a direct response to that. Because he's a flipping mess of a man and a very strange dude. Though he has a heart and etc. And you, you end up empathising with him a bit. But it just felt like such a counterfoil deliberately to me. I'm not sure if I'm overreading that. Well, I, I think, you know, the thing is with Mr. Big and Carrie is that on paper and kind of in reality, they're both horrible people, really. They're not nice. Yeah. They're not good. And the reason they're not good is that they kind of feel deluded in their own sense of worth. You know, they feel kind of deluded in... in why anyone would care about what they think or what they do. Whereas the characters in Girls, even though they're all deluded as well, there's something about their failures and their, and their sort of the fact that they, they're, they're all characters with actual bodies. It's something about that which makes them so much more like real people. And it's not just a kind of millennial divide. I think there is something much more genuine about the characters in Girls than the characters in uh, Sex and the Sea. I think that's a really good point. I think the sort of millennial label is is really misplaced for girls like i understand why people might paint it that way but actually it's fundamentally about young people trying to find their identity and that is a a tale that could exist in any context <laughs> the fact that it exists in new york and they have miraculously enormous flats um <laughs> and they're all somehow able, always able to earn money <laughs> for rent in new york i admit that is a kind of millennial fantasy but at the same time i think fundamentally that the appeal of the show is that She's written brilliant characters, and I love. Like, I can't wait to see who they argue with next. <laughs> <laughs> you can't wait to. Who's getting Edelingus next week on that show? Well, that's the thing. Like, that's the, the stakes are high. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, it's me, Tom from the future. Time when I owned a much better microphone. I'm just dropping in quickly to let you know that we're about to spoil all of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, uh, a fantastic film about roaring salesmen, their jobs on the line. We normally try to put spoiler warnings inside the show, uh, but we didn't, so here I am. Uh, basically, 
if you want to watch it from scratch and don't want to know anything about it, skip ahead 10 minutes and you'll be fine. Uh, so the next argument I want to talk about, and also, like, this film is entirely arguments. And this is Glengarry Glenross, which is a film about uh, salesmen trying to sell property after Baldwin tells them that they're going to get fired in the next two days unless they sell a certain amount of stuff. Like, the, the top two sellers will get to live, and the others will be destroyed. What happens after that? Like, it's, so it's based on a play, and you can tell, like, so there's only, like, three sets of the whole thing. But the cast is immense. Like, it's incredible. And the relationship between these men is so poisonous. The kind of combination of ego, the braggadocio, determination to prove themselves against each other, but also occasionally kind of, like, put an arm around each other to, like, falsely comfort one another just for their own selfish reasons. It's a study of I hate the phrase toxic masculinity, but it, this, it's about like a boys club that's gone really wrong. I think the crux of it is Al Pacino, who plays a character who is lauded at the start of the film as being, oh, the best salesman. And he's just miles ahead. Uh, he's just like, he's obviously going to win. And he doesn't really come into it until like the second half of the film. And at that point, like the antagonism, like everyone is flaring up. Everyone is at absolute breaking point. And Al Pacino is this kind of calm character in the middle of it who can give as good as he gets, but also sets everyone off. It's just really interesting. There's like also just painfully awkward bits where um, Pacino is trying to grift a guy who a guy is trying to sell property to. The guy's not sure. He's really kind of like, oh no. The misogyny in the film is actually really deliberate. So they're always trying to overcome the will of the men's wives when they're trying to sell stuff to them. And there's something so ugly, but brilliantly presented about that dynamic that still is relevant today. Yes, there's something about the way that Pacino gets in that guy's head, you know. Right. The way it's he really can, sinister. It's really yeah. sinister and it's if I remember right it's kind of tinged with kind of homoeroticism yeah, as definitely. well. He's kind Absolutely. of he's kind of playing on this guy's uh, he seduces him basically over he, a lot of drinks. Um, yeah. yeah. And you don't know quite what's what's happening like you don't know like, at, at the time you're watching that, that that's what Pacino's doing. Um, no, and he's kind of seduced you as a as an audience member as well. You kind of yeah, he's like the prisoner he's, of the character. Yeah, he's kind of. I remember the the scene where he unloads on that guy after that guy I think pulls oh, out the last brutal. Minute. It's really horrible, you know. And I think I think Pacino can use the c word like no other man. <laughs> That's one of the best uses of that word in, <laughs> in cinema. I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's absolutely exceptional stuff. The whole cast is amazing. Like it's just one of those they just put it together brilliantly. It's such a weird film to actually even make because it feels longer than it is because it's purely talking. Mm. There aren't any action scenes. Nothing very exciting really happens. It's just men being dicks to each other. I really like. It's a really good early Spacey performance as well, Kevin Spacey. Oh yeah, it's true. Yeah. One thing I always like in cinema is a is a really good bureaucratic wall you know someone yeah, who just yeah. says no i was thinking of, i was talking to my girlfriend earlier about the film the english patient and i love oh, the yeah. scene in that where he like runs into town to come quick you need to save juliette Benoche. and the soldier who meets him is just like no he just keeps saying no to him no i don't know who you are you a spy or whatever you know and and you know because he hasn't seen the rest of the film that guy he hasn't seen <laughs> what ray finds has gone through so he's just being English colonial administrator and yeah, quite in this African colony. So it's like Kevin Spacey at the end of that film where Jack Lemon is just like begging him to, I think he just oh, wants those leads, you know. And that he, is 
and he won't give it to oh, him. Yeah. And he just says, he asks him why, and he just says, because I don't like you. And it's just... Yeah, it's the turnaround there, because the whole film, like, everyone bollocks Kevin Spacey for being the admin manager, and he's he's basically the messenger that they all shoot. And that moment of nerd revenge, and the way it crushes Jack Lemmon is extraordinary. I think Jack Lemmon, I think he did win an Oscar for that. Yeah, um, he did, yeah. Yeah, and it's, again, an extraordinary bit of cinema. Like, it's so good. I think it's, it's, it's the origin of the Gill character from The Simpsons as well. Isn't it? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it's also, it's like that and Death of the Salesman. You kind of roll yes, a lot of these people right, into yes. one archetype. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a kind of recurring thing. But that's one of the films that kind of like captures it the most. It's also incredibly atmospheric. Like, even though it's just a few sets, the fact it's like raining, torrentially raining all the time, this neon couple of streets and they're all in claustrophobic cars and they can't see anywhere because like the the rain is just like concealing your vision of the street and it really contributes to this idea that the, all these fellas are trapped in this terrible task that Alec Baldwin has set them and they can't escape and they're desperate the desperation bleeds out of the film yeah they're all smoking and drinking they all kind of look crap as well and it's like yeah they're just on the edge they're all on the edge uh <laughs> So yeah, if you want to see some amazing arguments, that that is a good one. So my, my last choice would, is actually on a different tack, really. For this, it's uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And for this, I mean the BBC version. Though the film is good, that was more recent. But I mean the old one with Alec Guinness, who played George Smiley. And you couldn't really call any of the conversations arguments, but they are very much conflicts. The particular scenes I'm talking about are where Smiley's got someone in a room with him. He's just sitting across from him on a chair and he wants information from him or he's just trying to read him. And George Smiley, played absolutely brilliantly by um, Alec Guinness, just stays like mute and he just invites the other person to talk constantly. Smiley's superpower is that he's apparently harmless. Like, he's like a kind of hedgehog. <laughs> he's with his thick rimmed glasses and he's like a little bit dishevelled and he's kind of like slumping and he's like he seems diminutive and unthreatening but he's he's a ruthless spy and John le Carre apparently wrote Smiley as a response to James Bond in many ways because he realised as a man who's actually worked in that world that spycraft is much more boring and much more subtle than the action movies kind of show it so um, seeing George Smiley sit across from quite an incompetent goon, and the the goon ends up spilling everything to him, just just because George Smiley just stares at him for a long time. But the the brilliant bit is when he meets Carla, and that is just it's a meeting of minds, and it's almost completely bereft of dialogue, and it's like it's, it's just it reminds me of Cracker, where Cracker just puts two people in a room. And that their minds go to battle. Uh, and to me, that like, even if they're not yelling at each other, that's still an argument. That's still like a contest between the two. And that requires exceptional writing and even better acting, which I think Tinkertale Soldier Spy absolutely managed. Um, and besides that, it's an absolutely wonderful show in terms of just visually, I think, the kind of almost faded film stock they use, the kind of uh, greens and browns, the kind of boredom of spy work is, is a, very like a part of the fabric of that, uh, of that show. Um, and it's one of my favourite shows ever. It's funny, isn't it, how easy it is to forget that sort of, you know, British TV in the 70s and the 80s... It was actually really good. Really good. There's yeah. so much in there that you can go investigate, you know. That is as good as everyone says it is, as is I, Claudius, is really good. Mm. All of the Dennis Potter ones, uh, I would 
Very strongly recommend if you've got the stomach for it, Brimstone and Treacle, which is a really horrible but really, really good play that he did in the I don't actually think they even showed it because it's so horrible. It's basically oh, well. it's basically about the devil, literally the devil coming round to Denim Elliott's house and Denim Elliott has a, a daughter who is like a vegetable, like a paraplegic. Uh, no, I'm trying to think of the right term, but she's in the in the parlance of the show, she's a vegetable. Which is obviously not the correct term. No, it's no, not 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 allowed. But yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, and and basically does horrible things to her. And it's it is a Denim Elliott in the later scenes of that show does this kind of speech about how he likes the National Front and how he how he, the kind mm. of darkness of his personality is has kind of bled into his political beliefs that could have been like literally written yesterday, which is extraordinary. Uh, so that's another one I'd recommend from that kind of era. Uh, there's loads I could like uh, that I'd research. I'd say Brond is a very outside case here, which is also a kind of, uh, so you could take the comfortable world of middle-class academic England in the eighties and also put, and then put the devil in that and see what happens. But it's, it, that is a that's quite something i want to thank um friend tony ellis for putting me onto that show because it only it ran for one series i think as most british tv series seasons do but that is again something that would never get made now i um, have to report back on that one check it out yeah, it's really it's like really surreal um, <laughs> i think you might enjoy it yeah awesome uh, that's all the time we have to chat about television and films uh this time but if you'd like to support us, we have a Patreon, which is a great incredible Patreon. Just Google that. You'll get there. Um, we don't charge for these shows. We only charge for the core great crowbar episodes, but those donations help us to do these extra things that you, you might enjoy. This is, yeah, again, as I say, an ex- kind of an experiment. And I want to thank you, Jamie, so much for joining me. I've had a really fun time doing this. Yeah, definitely. Um, me too. Yeah. So any feedback you have, again, com. Uh, we hope to see you soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks.